great things in store because this is your church. It's not ours. In Jesus' name, everybody said. Amen. Amen. Can we give one more thank you to Kate? You guys may be seated. Well, hey, uh, it's actually interesting that we talk about this. And, and again, I want to reiterate, there are seasons in church. And um, two years ago, when we had the transition, about a year and a half in, we started re-looking at the vision and mission. And here's the first thing I want you to see is this, is that the mission of the church is not designed or created by a person. It's not created by a pastor. It's not created by a leadership team. The mission of the church never changes because the person who gave us the mission is the head of the church, who is Jesus. Amen? And so the mission of the church has never changed, but about a year and a half ago, we started rethinking our vision and values, and I want to remind us of our mission, and then I'm going to bring us back to our vision and values. Okay, so here is the mission of the church, Matthew 28. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth and has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, our mission as a church has a few parts to it, and I want you to hear this because this is the the challenge, the charge that God has given us as a community, not just me. If you are a part of Zion, this is your mission too. Everybody catch that? So it's not just my mission, it's our mission. It is the mission of every church. And any church you go to where it says, here is our mission statement. If it is not directed by Jesus, they're not following the right mission. Okay, so here's what it comes down to. First, we make disciples. That's followers and students of Jesus. That's what a disciple is. But it's not just of, uh, of people, it's of all nations. Now here's what this means. Nations refers to people groups. And some people, that means they're called to go to places like Thailand or Peru or Africa. But would you agree, does, what is Clear Lake made of? All different kinds of people. Our job is to make disciples of different people, people groups. Every person in our community is an opportunity for discipleship. So it does not mean that you personally have to go across country or across seas. Your mission field is right here. Other people, their mission field is to go somewhere else. Okay? Then we are to baptize them. Now, the Bible tells us that when you baptize somebody that's immersing them in water, that first and foremost, you're uniting them to Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. But also when you're baptized, you become part of a family, a church community. So baptism is important, which is why when you're a member, we actually ask that you be baptized first if you want to be a formal member of a church community. Because we are a family, and what unites us is Christ, and what unites us to Christ is our baptism. Okay? Then from there, we have to teach people how to obey what Jesus commanded. Now, here's what this means. Nobody knows how to follow Jesus on their own. They need to be taught how to follow Jesus. And the word for this is called discipleship or spiritual formation. Everybody say spiritual formation. Okay, spiritual formation is helping you learn how to be formed into the the Savior, the King that you choose to follow. And our job, my job on Sunday morning is not to entertain you. My job is not to deliver the most, the, you know, wow, that was an incredible sermon. My job is to teach you how to follow Jesus. And if you're not a Christian, it's to teach you that you need Jesus. That's, that's my job. Now, that being said, if that's our mission, our vision and values are different. Uh, how many of you grew up going to church when you were younger? Would you agree that church looks way different now than, now than it did when you were a kid? How about if you're 50, 60 years old? How much different is the church than if you're 50 or 60? It's a lot different, isn't it? 
Because here's the thing. Our job as a church, our mission always stays the same, but our vision, our values, they should change. They change with culture. Now, we decided what it, what would it look like if we combined our vision and values into one statement, and we have three words that are shaped by Scripture, but these three words encapsulate our vision and our value as a church, and they are, you guys are sick of me talking about it, but there's a reason for it, is that vision leaks. If we don't talk about it, you'll forget it. And so our three words, if you know them, they are belong, believe, say the last one with me, become. And we looked at this, and the reason why we did it is that Jesus, who did Jesus hang out with? He hung out with people who didn't know him, who didn't believe. And he made every single one of them feel like they could belong, because that's the, usually where things start is you don't have to believe to belong. You can have doubts. You can not even be sure if you want to be a Christian, but you can come and be a part of this church and know that, hey, you're not only welcome here, we want you to participate, even if you're not there yet in belief. So we spent our first year in this transition talking about how do we be a place where you don't have to believe to belong. And now, the second part is we're unapologetically about Jesus, amen? Unapologetically, we are a church. We're not a social club. We're not a YMCA. We are a church. We exist for the glory and honor and fame of Jesus. And so we've spent this year focusing on what does it mean to believe? Because what you believe in, you ultimately become like. And so belief matters. And the way we did this is that over, and you may not realize it, but we took several series that have been focusing on our beliefs. And it started in the summer. Our series, This Is How I Fight, was all about believing that we are in a spiritual war with an enemy who is fighting for the hearts, minds, and souls of believers and non-believers alike. And that that enemy is real. And how we fight it is through the spiritual realm. It's through the truth of God's word. It's not in our flesh. Then in the fall, we started a new series called Rock of Ages, Volume 1, 1, 1. Oh, sorry, it's trying to sound like an 80s commercial. <laughs> where we explored the Apostles' Creed, that all of us have beliefs about God. And the Apostles' Creed is the foundation of our Christian faith. And, and here's what's so important about the Apostles' Creed. We can disagree with Christians and still be followers of Jesus. We don't always have to agree on everything, but what we do agree on is that foundation of the Apostles' Creed. And our culture has all kinds of beliefs, so what separates our belief as Christians from other beliefs is found in the Apostles' Creed. Then after that, we looked at the stories that shape us because not only do we have beliefs about God, but we have beliefs about ourselves. And those stories that have shaped you are stories that other people spoke over you, but also things you've spoken over to yourself. How many of you have bad tapes that you listen to in your head? Okay, for you younger people, a tape was this little thin. If I got out a pencil and a cassette, everybody that's my age would go, yes, no, no. <laughs> But how many of you have those wrong stories that you listen to? I do. And those stories affect, uh, essentially affect our beliefs. They, what we believe about God, about ourselves, about the world and other people. And so we looked at this, this series called Formed, where we talked about how the wrong stories can deform us. And they force us to conform to things that are not of Christ. And the goal is to be transformed. And we want to be transformed by the Holy Spirit and God's Word and community. And that transformation leads us to what's called the cruciformed or cross-shaped life. And then after we looked at our beliefs in the creed, what we ultimately believe, and then we looked at the wrong beliefs, we discovered that we are all in recovery. 
that all of us need to be rescued from our wrong beliefs, our wrong stories. And Jesus came on a divine rescue mission to heal and redeem us, to rescue us from those stories. And, and since we all need to be recovered, the goal is what does it mean to be recovered? It doesn't mean everything's figured out. Instead, what it means is that God can take your broken stories and beliefs and transform them and redeem your hurts and your pains to point and help others meet and connect with Jesus. That's what the recovered life is, is when God takes those scars, those broken things, and uses them for His glory, His beauty. That got me thinking, as we're coming into this new year, the thing that I struggle most with belief is believing. When I started in ministry in 2000, I had this idea in my head that if I went to church, if I, if I started working at a church, my prayer life would be incredible. I'd be reading the Bible. I'd be growing spiritually and all these incredible things would happen. And then I discovered very quickly that working in a church is still working. And it's easy to forget God in the process. And in fact, I'll actually argue that my spiritual health got harder, not easier. Because my faith became a job, not something I chose to be a part of. How many of you have ever done something before you did it as a job, you did it for fun, and then it became a job, and what did it cease being? Fun. And, and that happens all the time in pastors. So this is, again, a sermon preached to me, not just you. See, the hardest part of believing is belief. That is the hardest part for me. And, and this matters because, again, what you believe you become. So yes, it's incredibly helpful to know what Christians believe in the creeds. That's, that's good to know. It's good to acknowledge the stories that have shaped and misshapen me and misshapen you. And it's also important to know how to recover and what, why I need to be recovered from those things. But what happens in those times when I'm stumbling? When I'm not living out my beliefs or when I forget? Or how about the times I'm just out and out rebellious against God? I call them my God blinks moments where I'm like, God, can you just close your eyes for a moment while I do something really stupid? You know what I'm, you know what I'm talking about? And I was like, just don't watch this. I'm just going to do something really dumb and I just don't want you to see, right? How, what do I do in those moments when I'm struggling to believe or I just don't want to believe? Because here's the reality. Sometimes in my mind, I know I believe, but my, my heart feels far from God. And other times my heart, I may emotionally know it, but my mind has all those voices saying, this can't be real, this, is, this isn't true. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And so belief has to be so much more than just a statement of things that actually has to be personal. And, and, and so what I want to share with you, and, and this is the crazy part, I'm going to share with you over the next several weeks an almost 500-year-old truth that changed my life, that actually shaped me in those moments when I struggled to believe and reminded me and helped me to cling to something other than just my emotions or my thoughts, these truths have carried me through some of the most difficult seasons of my faith. And I actually believe they might do the same for you. And so that's what we're going to be spending over the next five weeks is talking about what is called the solas. The Apostles' Creed is the foundation of our faith. The five solas, and sola is Latin for alone. Everybody say alone. That's what sola. It doesn't mean lonely. It means alone. The five solas are the pillars built upon the foundation of the creeds, which is based on God's Word. Okay? And as we talk about these solas, I, I, I'm going to be honest, 
I'm going to share with you some history. Now, this isn't going to be a class. I'm, my goal is not to bore you, but it's important that we understand how we understand how we got here is we have to understand where we came from. Does that make sense? Where we are now is a reflection of where we came from. And, and so we're going to talk about some history that has to do with our Lutheran church. And, and I, I want you to know, again, this. Uh, in my 20s, I, I got saved in a Baptist church going into, into high school. And, and so I was in the Baptist church for six years. And then I went to a non-denominational church in my early 20s. And during that period, I got into this very arrogant phase where any denomination I kind of snubbed my nose at because I, I thought Lutherans, Baptists, Presbyterian, anything that had a, a, a religious-sounding name was boring, religious, and legalistic. And here's the thing. I actually didn't know anything about any of those denominations. Y'all know have, you know, people who have opinions about things they know nothing about? That was me in my 20s. So if you went Lutheran, I'd be like, oh, that's such a fake church. You need to be a part of this church, right? And where that came from was, one, I didn't know what I believed, but it came from a false understanding of Lutheranism. Now, I'm here to tell you, here I am at 47 years old, and I'm grateful I'm a Lutheran. When I, uh, when I was in seminary, I remember going to my pastor, a guy named Per Nielsen, still a dear friend and a mentor, and I said, Per, I think I'm becoming Lutheran. And he said, Jason, you're becoming a Christian. And at first I was like, that sounds very arrogant. And then he said, because here's the thing, the goal of being Lutheran is to love Jesus. Oh. <laughs> See, Lutheran is not about, I'm not here to make better Lutherans. I'm here to make followers of Jesus. Martin Luther, that was his desire. His desire was not to make Lutherans. It was to have people who love Jesus. And our Lutheranism is part of our history. So before we begin the series, I have to set it up, and I need to share our story, because here's what matters. And you may not realize this, but stories are how we understand the world. Psychology tells us that human beings only understand themselves in relationship to story. If you don't have a story, you don't exist. How you see the world, how you see this yourself, is story. It's not facts. It's not information. You all have stories. Stories matter. And so in order for us to understand our history, it's important we understand our story. And that story is going to shape why we have the solas. Now, here's where it starts. What you may not realize is that the evangelical modern church as we know it today would probably not exist if it were not for a 16th century German monk and a few trailblazing spiritual leaders over the next 100 years after that. Now, as I share this, again, my goal is not to be a classroom, but it's to help you understand where we came from. But also, I'm, my hope is that maybe you'll understand now why I'm so grateful that I'm part of the Lutheran Church and part of this movement called the Protestant Reformation. Our church and almost every church that is not Catholic are part of a spiritual movement called the Protestant Reformation. Everybody say Protestant Reformation. Okay, now, for those of you who are teachers, you all know what I'm doing when I'm asking people to repeat. I'm making sure you're not falling asleep. It's the whole goal. Prior to the Protestant Reformation, the largest church body in the world was the Roman Catholic Church. There were no Baptists or uh, Lutherans. It was Catholic, and you had another branch of Catholicism. Those were the two primary movements. Now, I want to be clear. I love my brothers and sisters that are Catholic. You, we can disagree on some things and still call each other family, because here's the thing. In Catholicism, they believe in the creeds, which are the foundation. Now, that also being said, I'm going to share some things that I want to make it clear. I am not 
coming after. I'm not trying to pick a fight with our Catholic brothers and sisters, but this is church history, and it's also part of what Catholics still believe today, and it's what separates Protestantism from Catholicism. It's what makes us Lutheran. Now, as we do this, I, I want to be as respectful as possible. So my goal is not to poke fun at. It is to help you understand how we got to where we are. Now, if you were to boil down the differences between us and the Catholic Church, it actually comes down to the five solas. And that's what we're going to be walking through. Now, some of you might be saying, why does any of this matter, Jason? Just tell me how to follow Jesus and let's move on. But here's what I want you to think about. The Bible has some poetry. It has some law codes and, yes, some letters. But of the 66 books written over 1,500 years, most of the Bible is story. That's most of it. Some of it's not, but most of it is story. God chose to reveal himself through stories, and he continues to reveal himself through stories. Once I began to realize the profoundness that story is how we understand the world. See, I thought stories were something you did in Sunday school for children. That when I became an adult, now your job was to give me a couple life verses that I could slap on a coffee cup and then go and charge and take the world. But all of those verses are found within stories. Stories matter. Story is how God chose to reveal himself to us. And once I understood that, I began to see the power and importance of not just God's story in Scripture, but God's story in history. So I'm going to share just briefly a little bit of our story, how we came about. Okay, so it started with Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a 16th century Catholic monk who was originally training to be a lawyer. So the dude's super smart, okay? Very smart guy. He was a deeply fearful man who was terrified of God's wrath. He, he at one point, there's a, a fun story, not fun story, but he was caught in a lightning storm before he was a monk, caught in a lightning storm, heading someplace, and he was so afraid of the lightning that he took shelter in a barn and he prayed to the Lord, God, if you save me from this lightning storm, I'll give my life to you and I'll become a monk. He made it through the night, became a monk. That's how he started. His fear was that he was never going to be good enough to please God. So he entered into the priesthood, actually for the wrong reason. He didn't enter in because he wanted to serve God. He was afraid if he didn't do enough, he wouldn't make it in. That's how it started. Some of you here today are still wrestling through that. He arose quickly in Catholic circles as an incredible thinker. But he began to see a problem in the church in the 16th century. Primarily, it seemed that the church cared more about money than it does people. That's still a criticism for the church today, not just the Roman Catholic Church, but for the evangelical church. How many of you know people who think the church cares more about money than it does people? How many of you think the church cares more about money than it does people? Just look preachersandsneakers.com and you'll see, y'all know what I'm talking about? Like, what does it say when you got a pastor who wears $8,000 shoes and the average person's making $32,000 a year? Or when churches are more consumed, concerned about building bigger buildings and more things so that they are building their empire instead of God's kingdom. Now that's not a critique on megachurch because guess what? Smaller churches have the same problem. So this is, this is a real thing. What happened to Luther is still something that we wrestle with today. Some of you here are not ready to dedicate your life to Christ because you think the church cares more about money than it does people. This is also why, and I want you to hear this, I don't know what anybody in this room gives. I don't even know what our staff gives. In fact, I don't even know what I give because my wife handles the finances. <laughs> it's true. My wife is like, I wrote the check. I'm like, praise God, I don't want to know. 
But the reason why I don't know what anybody gives is I never want there to be the accusation, Jason only loves this people because they give money and these people don't. You could give a million dollars and I wouldn't have a clue. And in fact, I'd just say, praise the Lord for a million dollars. And some people are like, but how come you didn't call and thank me, Jason? Because I didn't know you gave it. I don't need to know. Now, here's what this stemmed from. In Luther's day, they, uh, the Catholic Church wanted to build its empire, and the way they did that was through immaculate buildings. And Pope Leo X, who was an incredibly corrupt pope, who loved to party and have uh, lavish parties, and he would take the tithe of the people and throw these incredible parties with wine and drinking. This is the Pope, mind you. And he wanted to build a building called St. Peter's Basilica, which still exists today. This is it. He wanted to build St. Peter's Basilica. Here was the problem. He didn't have the funds to do it. So he commissioned his, uh, his priests to go out and raise funds, and he in, instilled or instituted what was called indulgences. Everybody say indulgences. Okay, now in sermon read-through, as we were talking about it, the first thing that was said was, why do we need to talk about this? Well, one, it sets up next week, which is, next week, which is sola Christus, or Christ alone. But here's the other part. The Reformation would not have happened had there not been an institution of indulgences. Now, let me explain what indulgences are so you understand what's taking place. In Catholicism, still taught today, it is believed that when a person, a Christian, dies, they are not holy enough yet to go to heaven. So there's an in-between place called purgatory. How many of you have ever heard that phrase, purgatory, before? I'm going to tell you what purgatory is and help you understand it. So imagine for a moment there's a whiteboard, okay? Catholicism teaches that when you sin, you have an impact on the world. Do we have that picture of the, white, or the chalkboard? Sorry. Now let's say you have the sin. Now you're forgiven. Jesus forgives you your sin, and so he wipes your sin off the board. Here's the problem. What's left? Dust. And what Catholicism teaches is that while your sin is forgiven, yes, you are holy, you still have to make up for all the dust, the damage that you've come, that you've done. And think about it. When you lie, yes, you sin against God, but you also hurt a person. And that damage causes residue. Jesus' death doesn't deal with the residue. So instead, you have to go to this place called purgatory to work off the damage that you done to the, did to the world because of your sin. And so now imagine for a moment somebody dies and you, you hear about them, and the priest says, hey, because of their sin, they've got 10,000 years in purgatory. Now, if you're a loved one, does that give you much hope? They've got to spend 10,000 years to ascend a mountain to make up for the sin that they've done to purify it. So the Pope instituted what is called indulgences, and here's what an indulgence is. And by the way, you can still do indulgences through the Catholic Church today. I do not agree with them on this. It's not biblical, but they are still brothers and sisters in Christ, Okay. Indulgences was this, if you pay money to the church, a priest will forgive you the sin in there, therefore wiping off time in purgatory. It was a means to make money. Imagine if you came to me and said, Jason, I've sinned and I want to deal with this. Well, hey, Jesus has forgiven you, but pay me $5,000. Pay the church $5,000 and we'll erase time out of purgatory. So at one point, and, and here's the idea, is that the uh, indulgences are like taking a rag, a, a wet rag to the whiteboard, and it completely takes them off. So here's what happened. Someone came to Luther. Again, they would have conversations and said, hey, Luther, what do you think about indulgences? 
And so Luther did something that we have this dramatic picture of him trying to start a, you know, like a riot or a rebellion with the church. And this was not the case. See, the church was known for theological debate. That's what, that's what priests did. They would have regular debates about scripture. And so Luther wrote down what was called the 95 Thesis. How many of you guys know the term 95 Thesis? You ever heard that before? On October 31st, uh, in 1517, he took the 95 Thesis and he nailed them to what was called the Wittenberg Door. Now, the image that we get is him be like, ha, Pope, take this, right? No, that's not what took place. This was like the early version of AOL chat room. <laughs> if you're not old enough to remember AOL chat, chat room, it's like Reddit. It's not Facebook. It's not Twitter where you have 120 characters to offend as many people as possible. His goal was to start a debate around the theology of indulgences. That's all he was trying to do. He wasn't trying to rebel. He wasn't trying to start a movement. He simply wanted to have a conversation around God's word. And here were the three things that he was challenging in the 95 Thesis. First, the selling of forgiveness to fund a cathedral. That seems to be a problem. Second, the Pope's claim to the power to forgive and not forgive sins. He actually was asking the question, does any human being have the right to withhold forgiveness to someone that confesses? And then the third was the damage that indulgences on those grieving over lost loved ones. What did it do? How did indulgences hurt people? Luther was thinking pastorally, but more importantly, he was thinking scripturally. When Luther did this, he was going in to start a debate not to start a war. Pope Leo X was incredibly offended by this and began to attack Luther. For the next three and a half years, Luther's life was constantly being challenged, and in 1521, Luther was invited to a heresy trial called the Diet of Worms. I know it sounds grosser than it is. Worms is simply Worms Germany, okay? They weren't actually eating a diet of worms. And a diet was simply a gathering where they would have a trial to determine if Luther was a heretic. Now, you might be like, Jason, what's the big deal? A hundred years earlier, there was a guy named Huss. Huss actually was tried as a heretic at another diet, and his sentence was death. He was burned at the stake. This trial had significant consequences. If Luther was called a heretic for challenging the Pope, doing the 95 Thesis, he could be burned at the stake. Now, Luther did this incredible job defending himself, and his whole premise was this. It's God's Word. What does God's Word tell us? Not what does Pope tell us. What does God's Word tell us? And he ended up escaping, or not leaving. He, he left Worms and was heading back to Wittenberg, and word got around that the Pope was, char was basically asking for Luther's life, and a friend of Luther's kidnapped him. He kidnapped Luther while on the road. He took him to what's called the Waldorf Castle, Waldorf University, is based off the same thing. Okay? So now, here's what's taking place. He's going in there. Or, so, uh, um, Wartburg, not Waldorf, sorry. Wartburg Castle. There's too many W's in German. I don't know. <laughs> what do you mean? Sorry. <laughs> that was my German accent. How was that? <laughs> he, he, goes to, he goes to Wartburg Castle. Now, here's the cool part. He gets kidnapped, taken to the safe, lo safe location. The Pope doesn't know where he is. So what does Luther do with, during this time? Now, here's what's important for you to realize, okay? In the, the early Catholic Church, it was believed that the only people who could read God's Word were priests. That's it. The average person was not allowed access to the Bible. In fact, the Bible wasn't even translated into German. You had to know Greek or Latin in order to understand it. And so Luther went, no, this is not okay. The whole reason why people don't understand that our indulgences are wrong 
is because they don't know God's Word. So he set out, took the Greek and the Latin, and he began to translate the first Bible into the common man's language. And over 11 weeks, he took the New Testament and began to translate the first Bible into the people's language, into German. Now, here's the cool part, and I believe this is God's providence. At the exact same time that Luther was doing this, can you guess what was invented? The printing press. What was only accessible before because of scribes, God, uh, Luther wrote the German Bible so that the average person could read it, and then he began to mass produce it, sending it out to any German who wanted to read the Bible in their own language, which, by the way, was an affront to the Pope and the Catholic tradition that only priests can read the Bible. Now, all this takes place, and he sends this out, and by 1534, the entire Bible is translated into the people's language of German. I want you to think about this. This Bible that I hold in my hand, the Bible you have on your shelf, the Bible you have on your phone, probably would not exist if it were not for a rebellious 16th century monk. All of this is because one man, who wasn't trying to start a revolution, wanted to see God's Word in the people's hands. We take it for granted because now there's all kinds of different translations. The Bible's in hundreds of different languages now. When Luther did it, it was revolutionary. Now, at the heart of all of this, Luther's primary argument and continues to be is this. It doesn't matter what a pope decrees. It doesn't matter what a pastor says on the stage or a Facebook post or a political party or a particular denomination or what a popular trend is. What matters is what God's word says. My job is not to tell you what God's Word says. My job is to get out of the way so that the Holy Spirit can speak through God's Word. That's why I take so seriously the study of God's Word. And any pastor who gets up here should, because you don't need wisdom from Jason. It's God's Word that transforms lives. Amen? And so all of this is taking place, and here's what the first sola is sola scriptura. Everybody say that with me. Sola scriptura, which means God's Word alone. We submit to God's word alone. The ultimate authority in a believer's life in matters of faith, life, and morality are shaped by God's word. That's where we stand under. So you can listen to Stephen Furtick. You can listen to Jason Miller, Matt Chandler. You can listen to Oprah. But at the end of the day, everything, if you're a Christian, stands under the authority of God's word. And if it goes against God's word, then we don't listen to it. This is what Luther was pushing on. He's like, listen, I don't care what the Pope says. I want to know what God's Word says. Now, why does this matter for you and I? Well, let's stand as we read our scripture for today, 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. It's also the reason why we stand when we read God's Word, because God's Word is holy and set apart, not Jason. So let's read it loud and proud out loud. Here we go, 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. You ready? Here we go. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you, and you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The word of the Lord, praise be to God, you may be seated. Now, I want to be clear here. Catholics then and Catholics today still believe that God's Word is inspired by God. They also believe in the authority of the Bible. But here's the difference, and here's why this matters. As Protestants, we call it Scripture alone. 
In Catholicism, they hold three different authorities called the three-legged stool of authority. First is God's word. Second is the church fathers and church tradition. And then third is papal authority or the teaching of the Pope. Here's the problem with this. They believe that the Pope is the one who translates God's word. So in other words, you believe whatever the Pope tells you the Bible says. So who ultimately has authority there, the Pope or God's word? The Pope. And Luther said, no, 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 no. There's no three-legged, there's no three-legged stool. There's one leg and it's God's word. That's where our authority comes from. And if it doesn't align with God's word, we don't obey it. We don't listen to it. Now, this is important for us because Sola Scriptura tells us that we are willing to acknowledge that human beings are, flu- are flawed, including pastors and priests and popes. I'm flawed. There are things that I've said from this stage that are not true. Not because I was trying to lie, but because I, I'm not perfect, Right? There are things in your life that are not true. God's word, we believe God's word is from God, and we also believe that church traditions can be flawed. Sometimes, and this is the problem with people who say, well, we've always done it that way. Yeah, but we always did it wrong that way. That's the problem with tradition. Remember when we talked about mission, vision, and values? Our mission is not tradition. Our mission has been established by the king who we serve, that we continue because he commanded it. Our vision and values change because when we get locked into tradition, what happens when you no longer are applicable to the world you live in? Things change. This is where we come in and we acknowledge that Scripture, in matters of faith, life, and morality, we believe in Scripture alone. How we do church, how we live our lives, that's going to change. The world has changed. So we need to learn how to operate in it. God's Word alone is meant to be the guide for our lives. Again, we have another problem. It's difficult to let God's Word be the sole authority in our lives today. It is. It's hard. For some of you, and I'm just going to be honest here, there are some of you in this room who say you're a Christian and the Bible has little to no weight on your life. You make decisions all the time. You make sinful decisions with no care. Or you're like, well, I don't agree with that. I don't care what the Bible says. That's what I want to do. Well, that's just a reality. And and I'm so glad you're here. So please don't hear that as a condemnation. It's not. It is just a reality that there are many of you in this room who say you love Jesus, but you don't care what God's Word has to say. Others of you, the Bible is a religious book reserved only for religious conversations. So when we're talking about church, sure, let's talk about the Bible. But when it comes to my business life or my home life, the Bible has no place for it. Others of you, it's great decor on your bookshelf. Some of you have never even owned a Bible. There are a bunch of reasons why these happen, and here are just a few of them. One, Christians don't always agree on what the Bible says on some key topics. That can make it really confusing. I mean, right now in this room, we could have a conversation about a bunch of different topics, and I guarantee you, Jesus-loving people, we may not agree on some things. So that gets confusing. Some of you in this room aren't even sure if you believe the Bible is God's Word. You know what? That's okay. I get it. That's where faith comes in and where salvation comes in. And here's the other reason for that is the truth is the Bible is super confusing. When I first got saved, everybody's like, the Bible's easy to read. And just, well, yeah, if I go to children's church and they make it so I can read it. But if you actually read the Bible, it's hard to read, especially if you've read the Old Testament. Right? I mean, think about it. When you read the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, they look like different gods, don't they? You got one in the Old Testament, there's death and war and murder and sex and all these things, and then there's Jesus. Love everybody. That's confusing. (laughs) 
And, and I think, and here's the re- primary reason why I think we struggle with this, is that I believe we've been taught to read the Bible the wrong way. And, and let me explain what I mean by that. How many of you have ever had an issue in your life, so you're like, okay, I'm going to go to the Bible and see what the Bible tells me to do about this issue. God, which job should I take? You open up the Bible, go to Google search history, choosing a job, Bible verses, right? This is typing. <laughs> At least I'm not doing this, right? <laughs> Actually, if I was really doing this, sorry. When I was a kid, this was the acrostic that I was taught. Bible. Basic instructions before leaving earth. The Bible is God's instruction manual for how to live. Okay, anybody ever been to Ikea? You ever gotten an instruction manual from Ikea? You ever tried to read the Bible like an instruction manual? It's like reading in a Swedish instruction manual. (laughs) I don't know why that was so hard to come out of my face. I have words today, I don't know. So here's what happens for us. If we think the Bible is only an instruction manual, we're missing the point. Because the truth is, there's very little instruction. There's guidance. There are things in the Bible that point us to God's heart. But for the most part, the Bible is not an instruction manual. It's not going to tell you how to choose a job, how to choose a life, how to, how to handle situations. It's going to give you wisdom and you're going to hear God's heart. But God's word is first and foremost a book about who God is how he created the world and who his people are and how they are to live. The other issues in the Bible are incredibly real. The Bible is absolutely confusing. Christians do not always agree, and you may not be a Christian yet. (laughs) I'm hoping you will be. But here's where knowing why sola scriptura came about is so important for us today. And it actually offers strength and encouragement for the believer. Luther's challenge 500 years ago still matters for us. The goal of God's word is to help us to get to know God and how to be saved. How do I know that? Well, let's go back to our key verse from 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. Let's read it again. 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 15. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you. And you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures. Did you know when he says sacred scripture, he's actually talking about the Old Testament. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. It was being written. Which are able to give you wisdom for what? salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul is literally saying this. You guys ready for this? The most important thing that Scripture teaches us is how to be saved. That's what it teaches us. That's the first goal of Scripture is to teach you how to be saved. And while, yes, God is absolutely concerned about how you live, and yes, the Bible has a lot of things to say about some issues, Its first job is to show you how you are to be saved and that this salvation comes through Christ. If you were to read the 66 books of the Bible, written over 1,500 years, there's a thread that goes through every page of the Bible, sometimes obviously and sometimes in the background. And here's the thread. Ready? I'm going to teach you how to read God's Word very quickly. Here's the primary purpose of God's Word. First, all humans are made in the image of God. Humans sin against God, against others, against creation, and against themselves. That sin has an impact. When you read the Old Testament, there's a reason why we see so much war and death and sexuality and immorality and all these bad decisions, because do we still see those things today? Is there still war? Are people still pretty nasty to each other? Is there adultery and affairs? Is there brokenness? The Old Testament reveals that the world has not changed much in thousands of years. We're still human beings and we all struggle with sin. 
And so the Old Testament shows us a broken world. Sin has an impact. That impact wounds and separates us first from God, but then from everything and everyone else, including ourselves. And no matter how hard you may try, humans cannot fix the problem because we don't have a sin problem. We have a heart and a mind problem. That's what the Bible reveals. That's its first and foremost job is to show you you need a Savior, and that Savior's name is Jesus. It is not a, a book of morality. It is a book about salvation. Now, we need to be saved. The first thing God cares about is restoring His relationship with you. That is His first desire. If you don't have a relationship with God, the Bible shows us God loves you and wants to know you. He wants a right relationship with you. That's what every page, and no matter how broken you are, God still wants you. Now, why does this matter? This is where Sola Scriptura comes in. There are some of you in this room who say, Jason, God won't want me until I've got my life figured out. The Bible alone, if we read the Bible, it shows us God wants you in spite of you. That God wants you because He loves you, not because you've got life figured out. Your cheese is already off the cracker. He still loves you. That is the heart. That's what Scripture shows us is God takes a broken and rebellious people and still, he, just as He looked at them, He looks at you and He says, Mine. Amen. <laughs> Every service, I love, this is why I love babies in here. It's like the best comic relief. It's awesome. Now let's look at the second part of 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is inspired by God. That word inspired comes from the Greek word theonoustos. I'm not going to ask you to say that. Theonostos literally means God breathed, and the idea is, is that God's Spirit was involved in the writing of Scripture. Now, okay, let's go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. When God formed man out of the dust, what does it say he did? He breathed life. To say God breathed means that the Holy Spirit was involved in the writing of creation. This does not mean that all of a sudden the writers of Scripture went like this. Well, wow, that's pretty cool. <laughs> That's not what happened. It means that the Holy Spirit partnered with the authors of the Bible in their circumstances, their experiences, and shaped what they wrote so that every word that was written came from the heart of God using their brokenness. The Holy Spirit directed and partnered with human authors to reveal God's story and heart through human authors' words and experiences. The human authors were not perfect, but the Holy Spirit worked perfectly through them. Let me give you an example for you scientifically-minded people. Genesis chapter 1 through 2. Some of you are like, I don't know if I can believe the Bible because I, I believe that the earth is billions of years old, not four or 6,000 years old. It just the science doesn't say it. Did you know that the Bible is not a science book? And did you know that the original authors, Moses, who most likely wrote Genesis didn't understand science as we do. The purpose of Genesis is not to say that the earth is literally 6,000 or six, six days, created in six days or 6,000 years old. The purpose is to say there was a personal God who personally made creation. That's the purpose. When you understand that the heart of the Bible is to teach you God's heart, not instructions, everything changes. See, if I understand that God loves me, just like my children, if I understand that God loves me as I love my children, my children are more apt to obey me when they understand that their love is secure first. Which is why the second part, 
Scripture, all the Scripture is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If God's number one goal for the Bible is to help us know how to be saved, His number two goal is that it's profitable to teach people, to rebuke them, correct them, but to train them for righteousness. The word profitable means this, it's for your benefit if you want it. That it's for your benefit to learn and study and to know God's Word. Why? Because God wants you to mature in your faith. He doesn't want to keep you as babies. And, and therefore, you can actually wrestle with it and be secure because the first goal of Scripture is to show you that you're loved and that you need a Savior. The second is how you live. But what about all the questions that I wrestle with? I want you to hear this. It's okay to wrestle with God's Word. Wrestling implies intentionality. I wrestle with God's word. There are things in the Bible that today I read and I'm like, I don't know what to do with that. So this leads to a question. See, when Luther nailed the 95 Thesis to the Wittenberg door, he was actually offering a challenge, a challenge to study God's word, to wrestle with God's word, and to be reformed in light of God's word. This is still a challenge for you and me, but why do we do it? Because what we're acknowledging is that if you want to know somebody, you need to get to know them. If I want to know if I want to know about Matt Cook, the best thing I can do is to talk to Matt Cook. A bunch of facts and figures about Matt Cook don't help me. A relationship with Matt does. The Bible is how God chose to reveal Himself. If I want to know God, I need to know God's Word. And when I wrestle with it, I wrestle with it because He's God and I'm not. And that when I read the Bible, there are things that don't make sense. But this is the beauty of it. When I wrestle with God, at least I'm asking questions. At least I'm curious. And instead of looking for better answers, maybe the goal of Scripture is to help me find better questions. So that instead of reading it and going, okay, how do I answer this question? What if every time I read the Bible, it begins to ask me a question? So let me give you an example. Why did Jesus love the way he did? How do I love like Jesus? How do we as a church, instead of us picking and choosing Scripture, how do we let Scripture shape us instead of us shaping Scripture? What if when we wrestle with the Bible, with Sola Scriptura, it's an invitation to get to know God? I want to invite the worship team up here. We must, this is from one pastor, he wrote this, we must be intentional about reading God's Word. It is also not merely done from the pulpit, but from across the coffee table in small group settings and in the study where people come for counsel. We must bring the Word to bear in every aspect of our ministries. Ministers, pastors, are often expected to be wonder workers, able to speak helpful words, magically improving the lives of our heroes. Heroes, hear, hearers, there's words. I can't do that. It's not my job to change you. That's the Holy Spirit's job. I can't change you. But when you submit yourself to Scripture and to God's Word, God can do some pretty remarkable things. This is why we need to unleash it so it can work in the lives of people. So what does that mean for us? Are Christians just supposed to read the Bible only? No, it's Scripture alone, not Scripture only. I love books on neuroscience. I love reading about neuroscience and, and psychology. I love reading history. It's okay to read other things. But on matters of faith, life, morality, how the church functions, what salvation looks like, I trust in God's Word. I don't trust in Oprah. I don't trust in a pastor. I don't even trust myself. I go back to God's Word. You'll remember that I told you that when I wrestle, this idea of sola scriptura has shaped me and helped me, and here's how. In those times when I wrestle with whether or not I'm in a good place with God, maybe I'm in that state of rebellion, God's Word reminds me 
that God never expected me to be perfect. In fact, He knows my brokenness better than I do. And He loves me and He wants me. God's Word grounds me back. And I read it to remind myself that I'm not saved by what I do. I'm saved by what Jesus did. I read it so that I understand God's heart for the world, God's heart for me, God's heart for you. See, the Bible actually does have things to say to us about His heart. It does have things to tell us about Himself, humanity, morality, sexuality, ethics, His people, His creation. But above all, it tells us about humanity or or, uh, what does it mean to live for Him. We need this, but first and foremost, it's grounded in His love. I want to end with this. Would you stand with me? God wants us to be a people of the book who ground our lives in God's word. And, and I'm, I didn't do this first service, but I feel like we need to. I need to repent to you because I don't know as a pastor that I've pushed hard enough how important it is that we understand God's word. That God's word is a part of every conversation that we can and, and that we shape ourselves and that we can discuss and debate. And, and, and I don't know that I've always done that well. And I'm sorry for that. We are not here because of me or because of what I can say. We're here because God revealed himself through the person of Jesus, and Jesus is revealed through what? The Bible. My prayer is that we become a people of the book, Sola Scriptura. Luther's challenge was one of curiosity. That's all he was doing. He he wasn't trying to start a war rebellion. He was just simply saying, wait, wait, have we gone back to the source? My prayer for you is I hope that maybe, maybe today, this might spark some curiosity in you for what God has to say to you. It's not going to give you every answer, but it is going to give you some things to wrestle with. And sometimes it's, I don't even know what to do with this, God. And guess what? That's okay. That's why we need community. We're going to take our offering. We're going to come and and close with this last worship song, and then I'm going to dismiss this. And I apologize for going a couple minutes late. Again, I want to thank Kate again so much for all that she's done. And thank you for the ministry and the work that is here.